Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm really pleased to welcome you to this week's Inspiring Leadership podcast with a good friend of mine who I have known for over 15 years. And um, I was doing an interview with Deanna Oppenheimer and she said, you need to meet this person, have a chat with him. Or in fact, it was the other way. I was doing an interview with another member of this guy's team and got to meet the, the gentleman we're going to chat to in a minute. And we just we just struck it off. We got on so well that um, we ended up working together and I was very lucky to be his coach. I learned more from him than I think he ever learned from me. An amazing man who served some 24 years in Washington Mutual, um, experienced a lot before uh, when the bank was at its height. Uh, and then he came to Barclays and uh, did an amazing turnaround at Barclays. And as a result of his experiences, and he went on to become a non-executive director at like Santander, um, and he's also a great speaker, uh, a, a great mentor, uh, a wise man sharing advice with people and a great storyteller, a raconteur. You, you'd enjoy a good evening out with him because he also owns a winery, which is also quite helpful, has shares in a winery. So uh, I had a very enjoyable evening with my wife, Lee, uh, with him in Seattle recently when we were over there. And um, he's just written a book called uh, The Better Way to Win. Uh, Leading in a Time of Crisis, which is a cracking good book. And I do recommend that you read it because it, it really captures uh, people in a time of crisis. And we're in yet another time of crisis. Uh, he's been through a few and actually a leader who takes by what I think he would call connected leadership, takes people with it. Without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself to what he's doing now. Over to you. Thank you, Jonathan. What a wonderful introduction. Um, I, I'm definitely going to listen to that again and again. <laughs> My name is Mike Amato. And as Jonathan mentioned, we became friends. Um, he's the only executive coach I ever had. And um, and he modestly says that he learned more from me than I from him. And that's not true. Um, um, so so the tremendous value. And, and obviously, the friendship has endured. But um, I am a former executive financial services for over 35 years, United States and in um, in the UK with global responsibilities. Um, I uh, wrote a book, The Better Way to Win, which which takes an actual experience and an and example of, of a crisis that, that occurred and 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 how we recovered from it, what we did, and then what were the results. So, so uh, you know, what was the ROI of that transformation is the backdrop of the book because it certainly fits today leading in time of crisis because almost every organization's in a bit of a crisis right now, post-pandemic. Um, I also am a, a keynote speaker and um, and executive mentor. So I, I mentor several executives around the world and um, help with their organizations by doing a what call a culture audit. So um, do all those things. And as Jonathan said, uh, we founded a winery in 2005, and the winery's Ambassador Wines just was named in the top 100 in the world by uh, Wine Spirits magazine. So that's exciting as well. So Jonathan, back to you and inspired leadership. Thank you very much indeed, Mike. And I was just thinking, uh, my wife and I were taken to the races. Um, uh, we were hosted by Porsche, which was very nice. And it was a day at the races. And we got a guy who was a tipster. 
And he came around giving us tips on which horses to bet on. I'm not a big gambling man, but I actually did win. But I didn't follow any of his tips. I took the, the lucky, lucky bag of, you know, put £10 in and uh, the horses had to come in a certain order and they happened to come in a certain order. It wasn't enough to retire on. It was a small amount, but I certainly came away pleased to win. But what was interesting, he said that... Um, he said, if I was really good at this, he said, I wouldn't be giving tipsters out to now. I'd be retired very successfully. And I, I just want to acknowledge, Mike, that you have been massively successful. Uh, and therefore, it, you know, wealth isn't the only way to money in the bank isn't the only way to do it. I, I do love the fact that you and Rumi, your wife, um, you know, there, there you are practicing meditation, following Joe Dispenza uh, and, and living a good, healthy life, the full life. Uh, and I think it, it's happiness is is a a very difficult thing to define, but as the old Buddhists say, that everybody's searching for happiness and trying to avoid pain and suffering. And I think, you know, you've been through pain and suffering over the years. Uh, you and I have both been divorced, and that's not a pleasant thing to go through, but you certainly seem to have found happiness and it shines through in your energy. I just want to acknowledge that. Inspiring leadership, Mike, um, you may call it different things, but if, if we're talking about inspiring leadership, in the terms of what you've heard on the other podcasts uh, in this series, uh, what qualities and who strikes you as someone with inspiring leadership? Um, uh, to, to me, to define inspired leadership is kind of the first step. And to me, an inspired leader is someone who makes people feel something. So it's an emotional connection to the message can be emotional connection to the purpose of the organization, the vision. It could be a connection to their personality and style. But 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 an inspired leadership, inspiration cannot exist without connection. So um, in in my early career, I had a I had a boss who was a visionary, um, and, and 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 he created a picture of what the world could be, what world could look like, what changes were coming, and it inspired me, and in in ways that I didn't know. I was very very young at the time, and I just. I never had been inspired truly by by a leader till that time. So so it was it was a a wake up call. And and, and one of the things um, I've always tried to do is to say, gosh, if something feels a certain way, if I get a certain reaction from something, register it, owner it, keep it, <laughs> understand it, and 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 keep that keep that thing. So so early on, Jonathan, inspired leadership to me was I felt something, and in this case, it was visionary. Later on, as I met other leaders. I became attached to different other forms of connection, but all of them made me feel something. Mm. No, it's a, it's a nice way of describing it. And and the opposite to that is what I call the expiring leader, as opposed to inspiring, who suck the life out of you. And you and I saw one particular large beast of a man in uh, Barclays who was an expiring leader in the sort of the dark arts, the, the triad of psychopathy, narcissism and Machiavellianism and and they they do like a vortex they suck like a black hole they suck in all the goodwill and the effort of so many people to feel to fuel their sort of Trump-like or Boris-like um, egos so uh, anything you want to say on the expiring leaders you know you met a few in your time oh well I sure have and 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 it's interesting because um Early on in my career, I had a challenging manager, and, and, and we just did not get on. We, we couldn't have been more different. And um, um, it, I went to a trainer of a, of a course. They, they had a leadership course that all the managers were required to take at Washington Mutual. And I went to the head, and I said, gosh, I'm really struggling with this person. And I said, well, what are you learning? 
I said, I'm learning that I don't like them. They go, no, but what are you learning? And he said, remember, learning how not to be is every bit as important as how to be. And it was a wonderful little, um, I took it as a gentle kind of slap to the side of the head saying, you know, wake up and, and figure out what lessons you're, you're gaining from this relationship. So it paid dividends, as, as Jonathan mentioned, when we had a very challenging leader when I was at Barclays in London and, 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 and um, very challenging leader and, and very much focused on, on control and exercising control um, and delighted in it. So, so um, that was a second example of an inspiring leader that I worked for was Deanna Oppenheimer and she was our air force. So she helped keep our team insulated from a lot of the intrusions of this of this gentleman and 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 allowed us to do what we knew we had to do and to, and we knew we could do things that were uh, world class and we proved it but in this case Deanna was an inspiring leader in that she protected the work that we were doing that you know led to the the, the book saying that there's a better way to win that mm -hmm. actually would not have happened had she not protected us and and and, and allowed um an intrusive manager who's hell-bent on, on on controlling to take over so um that's what i would say jonathan yeah it, it's interesting because as well as, as your book mike which i've been uh looking into just lately i've also been uh listening to um the habit of excellence by uh, colonel langley sharp who was uh ran the army center for excellence and this idea that excellence is a habit you know something you practice um and and the military gave me in my 20 years there lots of learning of really inspiring leaders and values-based leadership and things like that and in for many leaders it's quite hard in business to have things that give you that same kind of experience as being in the military where you're really you know life or death situation it, it is it's the it's few, one of the few jobs which has unlimited liability you you give your life for, for the job but you, in your times in Washington Mutual, when you were on that board there, as things began to turn just before you left, um, and and in your time in Barclays, saw some almost what I call like the business version of combat, and and there was such big egos and such big things at stake, and the two thousand eight financial crisis. So I think this makes your book very credible for people who are in business because they can't often relate to you know wartime Iraq, Afghanistan, me in Bosnia, Northern Ireland, so easily as they can to difficult bosses, challenging times, a crisis, um, you know, cost of living crisis we've got now, post-pandemic, uh, all, all those kind of things that they will face. And I think they'll relate strongly to what you've got. Did, did you feel at times it was a little bit like being in combat, your version? Yes, exactly right. Um, uh, you know, going back to feelings, um, you know, the, 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 the the human body with the, and, and, and being human being means we have, we have, uh, you know, built in survival systems. And, and when those survival systems are attacked, it can be something that's not real. It can be something that's very real. Like you said, as you, as you mentioned in the, in the military, um, uh, your actual life is at stake, but it can feel that way, even if it's not, not a major threat, which is why you get such interesting reactions to stress. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, a neuroscientist named Jacques Panksepp, um, a Dutch neuroscientist, um, uh, successfully mapped seven survival systems in mammalian brains hmm. and and he mapped where they reside in the brain and how they interact and how they cross and intersect and without going into detail on, on all that but what, what it did definitely show was that while we think we understand oh yeah there's everybody talks about survival 
but when you break it down into seven distinct systems that actually um, um, coexist in our brains, hardwired, and what triggers them and what are the characteristics of them, you all of a sudden start understanding behaviors to threats. And that threat can be war. It can be um, uh, somebody driving and cutting you off. It can be whatever, but it triggers the same uh, reaction, the same survival mechanism. And there was um, one of the key lessons I learned in my career was how do you get a team of people out of survival mode into creative mode? Mm. And that's a whole bunch of this book is to say uh, people think and, and, and say they understand culture and everything. But, but really, when you dissect it and you look at how how you move from, you know, threats, control, um, do this or you're fired to wait, what if what if mm. and it's a fascinating study and, and and we did it with i'll tell you we did it with thirty thousand people and and, and it's thirty thousand people that decided to say what if mm. instead of what if you don't yeah and and i love that mike there's so many uh threads come off that almost like the passageways uh one of them is this interesting about our reaction to stress i'll be interested in a moment to hear your reaction to stress when it was so stressful at that time financial crisis uh, a, a, a super boss who was doing some quite uh, dangerous things and this obsession about his deep dives that he insisted that down to the basic level where people would make stories up just to get him off their backs. And they, oh, yes, it's exactly it's A plus B. Oh, never, right, okay. never. Yeah, no, he, he never checked. He never checked. But um, but it is interesting, you know, the old prefrontal cortex that when we don't have psychological safety, the blood rushes away from the executive function, this front part of our brain, and we become stupid. So these bosses who want control over everything, and they, like in the army, I had it as well, you know, a couple of senior people I worked for, um, many were good, but one or two were bullies. And, and I would almost be like a rabbit in the headlights, sort of paralyzed by not being able to think. And he'd shout at me, think, think! And you know, the more you got shouted at, the less you could think. But, but you definitely, and I, I was lucky enough to be there with you and Deanna and uh, and a whole range of really high quality people who I'm still in touch with. They're almost like a, a group of friends that you created around you that were really high performing leaders. And they created with you psychological safety. So people thought, well, and you were interested in what thought. I remember with a cleaner. I was coming, walking in with you one day in Barclays and, and you passed this person with the trolley and they had the whole cleaning the mops and the brushes. And you said to them, how are you? And they said, I'm fine. Now, most leaders would just walk on and you went, you know, how, how are you really? And they went, well, actually, I'm not that good because my, my mother's very ill and she's dying. And you went, oh, yeah, tell me about it. And, and she started to chat to you. You were there with her for 10 minutes. And it was that to me that this is the difference between what you saw late earlier on in Washington Mutual, where people said one thing, but they were starting to behave in a completely different way, that the, the way a leader treats someone who has no control over their career and their future, and it's of no apparent interest to the leader, but the leader cares about whoever they meet. And, and I, I'll never forget that, Mike. It was a, a lovely moment. Do you remember it? I do not. I have to be honest. I do not. Um, Because I can, I can, I can imagine it because of this, Jonathan, Um, I used to ask people all the time, how are they doing? And, 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 and pretty soon I would, I would say, why? Mm. And it would, especially the more senior they were in the company, the more taken aback they were. And you saw the blood, what, why, what, what do you mean? Why? And (laughs) then at 
a non-threatening why, but it was, I really am interested. I, I, gosh, Jonathan, I look at these individuals come in, whether they're cleaning or whether they're running uh, one of the major divisions of, of the company, they're, they're coming in and giving their time and a significant part of their life to the organization. And I treasured it. I, I love them for it. And, yeah, and yeah. so, I, I, well, I don't remember that exact incident. Um, I, I, I totally accept that it happened because um, um, I, I would do that. In fact, in fact, um, there was one uh, young woman who made coffee for us in, in the, in the um, canteen and, and um, just plugged in. She was just great. And I said, why don't you work? Oh, well, I can never work. I'm just, I'm just, um, I just relocated here and I'm, you know, learning English. No, come on. Come. So anyways, um, uh, oh, I could give you a couple more stories, but I won't. Um, anyways, she ended up starting, she started entry-level position and, and at the front line in, in, in a bank branch. Now she's um, uh, head of compliance in the mortgage division, Brilliant. and she's had a 15-year career. And every once in a while, I get an email from me, Mike, remember me, the coffee girl? And it was just so, so... Um, That's so you. That is, that is so you. And I remember it was Gary Duggan, um, who's now gone to be a CEO in, a, I think, a mortgage companies or something. Not quite sure, but he, he's done very well. But um, because I was doing 360 with Gary, I came to see you. And, and immediately you were, you were intellectually testing me. No, not in a nasty way. I just felt, oh, okay, so I'm here with someone who really is genuinely interested. Not go through the motion. He's genuinely interested in what makes me different, what makes me think, and how can he help Gary through the 360 feedback. Uh, it was really interesting. So... Let's go back to your life. Um, what has shaped you, Mike, into the leader you are today? Who, you know, what, what events happened? I mean, there's so many stories you can have, but if you were to pick two or three that shaped the leader you are today, things that hadn't gone well, things that had, whatever it was, tell us a bit, you know, take five minutes perhaps, tell us a bit about your life story. Okay, um, um, so, so, so when I was in early, in my late teens, I was um, really unmotivated. I just want to play baseball. I was, I played for a community college team, um, fairly average. Uh, I really not a good student, Jonathan, um, not a good student in high school. And, and I really couldn't imagine where I was going to go with my life. I knew I had to do something, but I couldn't imagine. And, and I just couldn't see it. Um, and, and, um, so I actually left university in, um, a, after a couple of years, and um, started working, um, coincidentally, my next neighbor worked at a finance company. And I started working at a finance company. And the moment I walked in the door, I loved it. I loved work. I loved the people I worked with. I loved talking to customers. Um, um, but I even had to go and collect loans. And, um, and, and I got to know the people that I collected loans from because they had a life circumstance that I could really connect with. I tried to understand what was going on. And became very successful at connecting, uh, at collecting loans because, again, once again, it's a connection um, from the heart, not from not from a mind connection. So, um, um, after three years of that, I knew I didn't want to be in that industry, and so I went back to university. So, what really formed me was um, I began to um, um, learn when I was ready to learn, and and um, uh, I had to pay for my own university. Um, it took me um, a year and a half to get the, to, to, to finish up my final um, two years of a formal degree. Uh, graduated uh, magna cum laude and, and um, an entirely different experience. So, so number one, it helped me to be what I think was an underperformer, really lost looking for purpose. 
and then finding that purpose and saying, wow, this is something else. And, and, it, and it really lit a fuse in me that's never, never died out. Well, stay, um, with, stay with that, Mike, because fi- finding purpose is really important. It's actually time and again how people have meaning and purpose. And indeed, it was something you did in Barclays to, as you got to each person, you know, what gives them meaning and purpose in their lives. Um, and there is the, the, the coffee lady. And now there she is uh, in, in the compliance role some years later but who gave you right on at the beginning were your parents still alive you know was there a teacher at school was there an uncle grandfather who did you go back to as your values who shaped you who said you know you can do this mike or or who who did you just do the opposite to they they did one thing and you thought i'm not gonna be like them i'm gonna do something different okay so um my both my parents were alive um they were married which was a real benefit but they each had different ways of teaching. And um, my mom was, was um, a, a master counselor and she was um, totally into, into belief. And, and if you can believe it now, sometimes I would be arrogant, which means, you know, I was underperforming and covering it up with insecurity and she would slam me pretty hard for that. Um, uh, but, but my mom taught me just, just basic, how, how to deconstruct a problem and think about it and then um, just had a wisdom and a wise way to keep me on track and going. My dad, on the other hand, he had started off his, his um, he'd been in from a, a very modest beginnings. Um, he, he was in an Italian family in Little Italy and Denver and uh, could have gone a number of ways with his life. And, um, and, and, and he chose a good way and not going a, a, you know, into, a, into a bad way, but cho- chose like his whole family to move out of that, um, that type of a, a, a life where, where it could have gone into crime or whatever else. And he built a family with five kids together with my mother. And he worked two or three jobs until I was over 15 years old. So he did everything he could to raise us. And he had real street smarts. So he taught me how to be, um, you know, knowledge is, is interesting, but, but how do you apply that knowledge? How do you plug it into, um, the way you live your life every day and the things you want to do. And so when you combine, you know, a master counselor with a, with a, with a uh, wonderful street smart father, um, uh, it, it, was an, it was a fantastic uh, combination that allowed me to see things a little bit differently and learn things differently and, and have different ways to assimilate knowledge. So that was kind of the, the start of it, Jonathan. Does that make sense? Or that, that makes complete sense. And, and, and in your life, uh, you've had some highs and you've had some lows. We were discussing something earlier. I'd like you to share with uh, the people listening and those who can watch the, the YouTube video, something which you were proud of. I think it's quite remarkable. Do you want to just bring out your prop? Sure, I will. Thank you. So I'm going to show, I'm going to show a, a book that I was given to set the story, um, uh, or set up the story here um, at Washington Mutual later on in my career. Um, 24 years, I started by answering the telephone at Wash Mutual, and I ended up being a co-president of, of the retail bank. And every year we had a big managers meeting, all the managers from the entire company around the nation got together and, and we had, a, we had a, a, a two-day conference. My team, which was 2,100 branches, um, we, we would take the first 1,500 people and go out into a club and, and, and we have a good time. And, and it, it scared HR to death. It scared the CEO to death, but I knew where my folks were and we had an agreement. We can go out that night, but you'd be on the stage with me. Well, I'm on the stage at 7.30. You guys have been in the seats or we'll never do this again. So um, 
when I announced I was resigning from Washington Mutual, um, by this time, these all these branch managers were, uh, they were five layers below me, but, um, but there was such a strong connection. They gave me a book and it says, Wamu wishes you well. And I'm holding the book up now for those of you that don't, that don't see it, but there's 1500 managers at this last event that I attended and they signed personal messages to me and they're not just good luck. Here's, here's um, personal messages to me that when they first met me, uh, what, they, what they felt when they heard the news I was leaving and, and what it meant to, to them to know me. And I was stunned. Jonathan, to this day, I've never read the entire book because I can't stop. I, I, I cry halfway through. I just cry. And here, here's somebody to give an entire page. And, and so anyways, it, it, just, it just was amazing to me. And so this was, this is probably my um, most valued possession, um, you know, non-familial mm, mm. valued possession. And, and um, it, my mom and dad would have been so proud. My dad yeah. saw this. My mother never got a chance to see this. And, and um, this is a reflection of the early teachings that they shared with me. Yeah, that's that's a lovely touch, Mike. And and you've had you've had many successes. And also, you as you said, um, what are you learning when you had that challenging manager, the boss challenged you? What are you learning, Mike? What what have you learned from uh, in your personal life uh, a dark moment, and in your business life a dark moment? What have you learned from from both those two occasions? Well, let's see. Let's go back to those survival systems. Um, as you mentioned before, I went through a divorce and, and that was um, certainly, a, 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 you know, if not, it was the lowest moment in my life probably. And, and so it's really, really, really difficult. Anybody who's been through it knows the, the impact it has on your body. And I heard a speaker at a meeting saying that um, um, your body um, doesn't know the difference between, between real joy or not real joy. And you can trick it into, into, um, um, sending, sending, um, serotonin through your body, helpful chemicals, um, through your body, um, by smiling. And so I, I, I just think to remember smiling like an idiot driving to work, um, tears in my eyes because my family's falling apart and smiling to trick my body into not, you know, flooding me with, 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 with toxic hormones because it, it because I was in survival mode. So, so, so what I learned by that exercise was that you really do. So we always think there's situations we can't control, but actually in reality, we can, we have a lot more control than we think. And if we control that basic um, um, ability to either fall into a survival mode or climb from that into a creative mode, you can have an amazing result. You can have an amazing outcome, even when you would have thought the situation was hopeless or you had no control. And, and it's this creative mode, if you can do it individually and move into um, seeking system or play or care systems and choose how you react to external stresses, nothing, nothing is impossible. And then if you can help without using those words, because in a business setting, it's very challenging to use those specific words and, and, and talk to people in, the, in this depth, but you can do that behind the scenes without saying it and get the folks on the team to each go through their own individual transformation. You can invite them to go through that. And pretty soon they're now into a creative mode. So, so um, through a very, very dark moment, I learned that crisis is actually a trampoline into um, something much better. And, and 
um, and it proved it again in a, in a much larger setting than just a, a population of one. It proved it in a very, very a larger setting than at Barclays in um, regarding the, the benefits of a crisis. Because so from, from the difficult time that you went through in, in that really challenging divorce, what in the whole of your business career, what, what has been the darkest moment and what did you learn from that? Well, okay, so the, the darkest moment without a doubt was um, just after moving to London and um, our team was was looking at the bank and saying we knew that we needed some to work on it. There, there were just some things we needed to do to get the, the bank to um, to operate optimally. There were challenges. Well, um, one Friday night, uh, we're just all getting ready to go home. Been a been a massively difficult week and we're getting ready to go home. The phone rings. Well, it's a BBC producer and says, um, hi, you're going to be on national TV on Sunday night on a show called Whistleblower. We have embedded reporters into your staff for the last nine months, and um, and we're going to um, um, expose Barclays in national TV on Sunday night. And um, you know, talk about survival systems, Jonathan. It was you, you can imagine that the, the entire range of emotions that that we went through as a team, and and um, that th that was the scariest one because I thought you know they just may take these Americans that send us back to the US um, before we get a chance to even show what we can do. And, and again, thank heavens, um, uh, Deanna trusted me to say it's a culture issue. It's not a behavior issue. It, the, the whole point was that organizations, leaders want to manage behaviors. They want to manage outputs. And I'll say this again later on, but in, in reality, you've got to manage the input. You've, you've got to follow a proper process and understand why those behaviors existed. So once again, that was just the lowest moment in a career. Very, very scary. The union was upset with me. Me. I mean, I, I was kind of the guy in the spot. Uh, the board was upset. Um, the employees were upset. And we mm. had to change it. We had to change it fast. And we had to change it fundamentally, or we just continued to kind of swirl around in this vortex of underperformance. Yeah, uh, well, thank you for sharing that, Mike. And I can't imagine uh, how it's like that sort of cold trickle of sweat down the back of your jacket and your shirt, and you go, "Oh my God!" I uh, I, I remember uh, when I worked for the field marshal, the head of the army. That that moment when I messed up, uh, I forgot to have dinner with his boss, who'd invited me to dinner in his club instead of the general because the general couldn't go, uh, and and the day came and I didn't go to it. I just completely forgot about it. And then I had to deal with it when I realized when someone came and said you know, it all happened. And I knew I had to face him. I knew I had to face the boss who was scared of this guy I hadn't had dinner with. It was the only person he was scared of. And uh, yeah, you have to sort of face into it and deal with it. But there is that horrible moment when you think, you know, is the ground going to swallow me up? And and it is interesting in the in a financial services organization and throughout your career, even as a non-executive director of Santander and various other organizations, you've given advice to financial services organizations. The military, it's quite easy. Our, our job, OK, unlimited liability. But our job was to uh, kill the Queen's enemy, defend the country, s serve to lead, looking after something bigger than ourselves, the community, the country, national security. But in banking, it's just about making rich people richer. And, and, and so to find a sense of meaning and purpose for people where money isn't the only motivator, because when it becomes the only motivator, then people start to do things which the whistleblower program found people would just focus on, make as much as you can, don't worry about the customer, you know. And, and so 
people quite easily lose their moral compass as they're trying to make the target, the money, achieve the goal, regardless of the consequences on customers and people like that. Um, what have you done, Mike? And I'm sure it's in, in your book, I seem to remember, The Better Way to Win. Um, what did you do to try and take people away from just this obsession with goal obsession, hit the target regardless of the consequences and to have a moral compass and to have a focus on really caring what the customer's experience was like? What did you do? Yes, so it's a really good point because, um, you know, on one hand, like you said, it could be seen as, well, how to make rich people richer. Well, in reality, you know, that's not the purpose. Uh, ideally, um, everybody is richer from the experience. So what we had to do is take a burning platform. And, and um, one of the first things we did, Jonathan, was create a vision of, of what we wanted to be. And the vision included the impact on all stakeholders. And I emphasize this, all stakeholders, not just shareholders. Mm. So in the process of trying to understand what happened, and it is a process, you need, you need data and insights and really trying to understand root causes of different behaviors that would seem to be illogical behaviors by managers and employees, they're not illogical. To them, they're reasonable. Reasonable means able to reason. Mm. And so when people does something, does something that we don't necessarily appreciate, we can understand what's the rationale for doing the thing we don't like. Don't just tell them to behave differently. Well, in this case, we'd lost track of our vision of, of our four constituents. And, and in our case, it was the communities that we work in. We work and serve a community of, of that, that we should be supporting. Um, in, in every one of our branches, call centers, et cetera, um, operation centers. Look, um, we serve our colleagues. So, mm -hmm. so how do we serve our colleagues? What is life like if we hit our vision with our colleagues and then with our customers and then with the capital markets and then with the shareholders? So we started moving shareholders or shareholding and, and financial results to the output if we do the right things for the previous three constituents. And once you create that vision and you attach you kind of connect it to the burning platform using using a vision statement, but then you start talking about the values. And 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 um, Jonathan, for us, it was connecting disconnected values. We had virtue signaling. I mean, how many people out there today, um, as executives, you might give a speech and say employees are our greatest resource, and then you spend eighty percent of 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 your day talking about how can you cut the workforce. Well, you, you can't hide behind that right now the emperor has no clothes. So, so everybody knows what's going on. So how do you kind of genuine attachment to the purpose of the organization, create an emotional attachment with the employees. And that's where the values come in. That's where you find the soul of the company is authentically linking, linking those values. Yeah. And that's lovely. And that ties in actually to kind of the question I was going to ask you later on about uh, the moral compass MQ and, and PQ sense of purpose. So those two beautifully covered off with that, that real story there of how you turn things around. Um, I'm also interested in, you know, young people are coming in and, you know, uh, they do desperately, if they're prepared to listen, need mentoring and advice. And you're very good as a mentor to many people. If you went back to the young Mike Amato, age 16 to 18, what bit of advice would you give to yourself, which is relevant to young people today, having learned and made all these mistakes you've made? Um, they don't need to make all your mistakes, but if you say this is important, do that, but don't worry about this. What would you say, Mike? Bit of advice. Okay, so uh, great question, Jonathan. And, and to me, it starts part. Um, I uh, what I wish when I was sixteen or seventeen, I would accept and celebrate my differences. I was different than the people around me, 
And to me, the difference sounded like inadequacy. And had I accepted and embraced how I was different and, 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 and really um, celebrate that, I would have, you, you love yourself more. And when you love yourself more, you, you, you're now operating at a higher plane. Um, I learned later in life about doing that, that work about understanding yourself. I think that the, the younger generation today, um, they're so much more introspective than I ever was. Um, and, and in fact, a lot of leaders today have a hard time connecting with the younger generation because they just look at work as a different piece of their life. A lot more socially conscious, actually. A lot less loyal just to some person in a suit and a tie standing up and telling them to work harder. So, so you have to you have to understand and, and relate to them in a different way. Well, I, I, I think by focusing on on the differences and 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 why they're unique and why those unique things are actually superpowers. And had I come to grip with those words superpower, I think I would have had the key learnings a lot sooner, avoided some mistakes. And, um, and, and um, I would have done, I think I would have done some pretty, some pretty cool things I haven't done yet. And I still may do them, Jonathan, but anyways, that's what I would say. Yeah, I, I do love that, that uh, point about your superpowers and, uh, and the differences. And, and I relate to that, you know, as I was growing up, I, you know, my teacher told me I was thick, I was going to become a dustman, do the garbage cans and things because I couldn't spell, I couldn't do my maths. It turns out I was what they call now neurodiverse. I was dyslexic. And I had dyscalculia, which meant numbers just blurred for me, even though I did pure and applied maths, which was a discipline rather than doing sums in my head. Um, but it, it's interesting. It turns out it was my superpower because my mother said to me, OK, so so your teacher has been um, you know, criticizing you for the things you can't do in your spelling and stuff like that. But I think you'll be good with people. And so actually. In some ways, early on, my thanks is to my mother that, you know, he, you are you and I talking and, and, and that friendship that we've had over these 15 years uh, and that we can pick up where we left off, even though some years go by. We have a meal in a restaurant in Seattle and, you know, two years may have passed by, but it just seems like yesterday. And that is, you know, your skills that you've learned over the years and hopefully my superpowers that I've learned that I'm interested in people and you are too. And so... It, it tends to work, but there's many things I'm not good at, uh, but it also made me learn to listen more uh, and audiobooks and things. Of course, in, in my young days, there were no such things as audiobooks. There were sort of records and there were tapes. I think in those early days, listening to Brian Tracy and yeah. um, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, there was uh, somebody got new... Um, Nightingale, Earl Nightingale, who was okay. a who was a, an American. Uh, I think he was a newsreader or something. But he had his strangest secret. Those those things made such a life difference to me. And they clearly your superpowers, accepting differences, embracing it, loving yourself, has given you that confidence. You've always come across with great confidence, and your interest in people and their stories mean that you're a raconteur and you tell stories and your own stories and 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 just you have people hanging by. Um, uh, their edge of the seats wanted to know what is next. Uh, thinking about your life, if you could go back and change one thing about your life, what what would you change, Mike? One thing. Um, I, you know, early on, I wish I was more curious. Mm. Um, so I was pretty certain that you know. So you mentioned confidence, and and sometimes confidence, like I said, can breathe and can, can kind of cross over into arrogance. Which again, thankfully, my mother was a good um, a good guide there, kept me from being arrogant, but. But um, 
um, if I had been more curious, to, to me, I didn't want to learn something if I couldn't plug it into my life. Well, there's a lot of things you can learn that you may not plug into your life today, but you will later. And so had I been more curious, had I been more fascinated, I would have been, um, um, in, in many ways, better at my job. Mm -hmm. I, I never looked at my job as being a banker. So a lot of people say, oh, you're a banker. No, I'm not. I worked at a bank for 35 years and never was a banker. I was a person leading people who did banking. But we could have changed. I looked at it performance. Performing means there's different stages in our life. And we go to that stage and we perform at a certain level in, in each one of these stages or venues. Work was just a venue. Happened to be a bank, but it could have been anywhere else. Well, had I been more curious and had I been a little bit more, um, um, more well-rounded in my education, I could have understood uh, better certain aspects that actually you helped me point out. Um, I learned a lot of this after meeting with you, Jonathan. One of the things that, that you helped me understand was, was um, you know, what were my derailers? What were the things I'm really good at? And how do I um, um, not necessarily address derailers, but how do I consume that part of me by, 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 by um, um, taking more advantage of my strengths? And one of my strengths could have been and, and became a little bit more of a lifelong student and learning a little bit more, much more deeper in detail into business, um, mm -hmm. not just satisfied with where I was. Yeah. So, so that's kind of a long and, 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 and I hope it's not a rambling answer, but no. that's the honest answer. It, it's a very interesting one, particularly that curiosity and lifelong learning. Uh, and that actually takes me into, we've talked about, uh, going to go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass. We've talked about moral uh, the moral compass and true north and things that how important that is, particularly when you and I have seen it go wrong in Wamu and in Barclays and in that whistleblower. So we've talked about the importance of having a sense of meaning and purpose, why you do what you do. Um, the thing I'm interested in next is health and well-being, because you, you're looking in great health, uh, those who can't see you, but you, you're looking in great health. I, I've known you for some years. What are your tips that, that work for you about looking after your physical health? and looking after your mental health? Because I know they're they interesting to you. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Um, I, I look at it as mind, body, and soul. And so what do we do to feed our mind, our body, and our soul? And so um, I, I start, uh, to me, meditation is very important. I've uh, been doing it for about three years now. And there's different ways to meditate. There's all sorts of methods. Um, but but um, it's got an amazing effect on, on your mind, on your vibration. So... That, that source energy that makes me breathe and my heartbeat every day without me thinking about it, it's, it's, it's a source energy. And so how do you expand that? And how do you uh, become creative and innovative versus collapsing and, 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 and kind of um, uh, stopping growing at a certain, at a certain age or certain place in life. So to me, expansion is created by, by meditation and connecting my soul to the world around me into into the day um body wise i'm i'm blessed i just have a high energy and so i like to um i, I do the gym three days a week um not certainly not heavy lifting i'm not a runner I, I just don't like to run but i do like to exercise and move and everything's better when i move so now you generate this energy from your heart in the beginning now you move and you exercise you're distributing that energy around the rest of your body and it creates good health mm. um and then and then so then then mind um, I'm much more fascinated with now accumulating knowledge um, outside my area of expertise. Um, sometimes it's books, but a lot of times it's just information, trying to understand 
why did somebody say this and, and where are they going with it? Um, how do we, how do we um, understand some of the dynamics in society today and, and, and what are some of the solutions that may appear that, that we're not really looking at? But to me, it's just really fascinating to look at, look at where we are today. And, and, uh, and, and so that's my mind, body, and, and soul. Mm. Uh, take credit to everything. Yeah, I love it. And, and it's, it's a really uh, practical and it's quite, um, for someone who's been such at the heart of businesses, which are hard-nosed financial services businesses, you are a little different from the norm. But actually, I think that that was what made you so successful. And I think it is important not to switch off. Now you've finished a full-time job and you're doing the the, the many, you know, it's like the, um, the, the plural career of many different things you're doing from speaking to uh, writing your book and uh, mentoring people. Um, you have this ability to connect with people. You've talked about it throughout. I've experienced it. M many have. If you were to share a tip with people who are, who are technically very good at what they do in banking or in technology or professional services or whatever walk of life they're in, and they, they people tell them, you've got high IQ, but your, your EQ needs to be developed, man. You're just, you're just crashing around the place and you're just not picking up what's going on. How have you helped others? to really read themselves, others, the environment? What, what, what have you, what's your tips? Uh, so, so the first tip is to know yourself. So, mm. so, so what happens in careers, Jonathan, um, there's a book called Leadership Pipeline. Um, and, and, um, um, and, and it describes the six turns in a career. And what happens is people are good at one level and because they're good at it, we promote them to the next level. But the skills to succeed at the next level are quite different. So I think a lot of times people expect an organization to help upskill them as they grow their career. And they might find themselves in that one job that what they've done in the past doesn't work. So self-awareness is the beginning of everything. Um, as you can see, when as speaking, I always point to my heart. I, I need to understand yourself and begin. And that's what the word insight means is to look inside and understand, am I in the right place? Remember, I mentioned performing in the theater, if you will. Um, well, well, or on a stage. Well, listen. Um, uh, sometimes we can be on the wrong stage, and you need to be honest with that. And I find that with um, in, in our winery, um, we're in Seattle. Here we've got um, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Apple now has uh, um, employees here. We have Boeing, we have Starbucks, and and I see especially uh, people younger younger people who are programmers. They come in and and they have no connection with their boss or really the purpose of the company. They're just doing their job. Well, when you, when they get promoted, they're 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 massively uncertain of how to lead in a different way. So, number one, start with insights. Number two, when you're connecting with somebody, is is you just simply have to care. In my opinion, I'd like to say this is a lot more complex, but if listen, if if you care and you care about their reality, that is the beginning of the definition of 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 um, of EQ. Uh, you can't be emotionally intelligent if you're disconnected from what the person's life journey is all about. Mm. So those are like the first two steps to me, Jonathan. Yeah, love it. That's a really great tip and very practical. Connect and care. And and I'm going to go back and I remember uh, we talked about leadership pipeline those years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, and I'm going to go back and listen to it again if there's a, an audio version. From EQ to CQ, uh, collaborative quotient. Um uh, collaborative, cognitive, cultural intelligence, how you create more inclusion, uh, accepting, as you've been talking about, differences, diversity, 
Um, what's your top tip to help people understand people who are different from you and their perspectives rather than seeing them as wrong? I mean, look, if we look in uh, America, you've got the Republicans and Democrats who got so polarized. There's polarization, there's, there's, um, there's the post-truth and all that kind of problem that we've got going on. How, how do you get people to understand and get on more with each other rather than get more differentiated? Uh, you know, what's that old biblical saying? He, he who throws the first stone um, must be free of sin himself. And so n- number one is, is to, to, to me, um, what I, I tell you, one of my least favorite things in the world is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is, is just prevalent in our society today. If you understand um, that you're not perfect, if you understand that the things that, that, that um, um, sometimes that you do, you say one thing and maybe do another thing, well, then can you be tolerant towards another person who you intensely dislike when they say one thing and do something else? So, so there's such hypocrisy. You mentioned left and right and everything, and, and there's such hypocrisy on, 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 on those sides because they both see the worst in the other and they display the worst in the other. So really, it's a projection and a reflection issue. So awareness is massively important. And, and, and I think climb down a little bit and understand that, you know what, sometimes I'm a little bit hypocritical. So if I'm mm-hmm. more understanding to that, then, then to me, when, 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 you, when you, you know, are working with somebody and trying to help them understand that, you're not coming at a sense of, I've got it and you don't. It's like, hey, we're both trying to figure this out a little bit. And can we find a common ground? And the common ground is not follow me as a leader. The common ground is, do you sign up for the purpose that I've described? If not, oh, for heaven's sakes, go and be happy at another organization. Mm. Do you sign up for the purpose or not? And that is the crucial asset test to me, whether somebody, I invite them to continue in Excel or if they decide they need to go somewhere else. Yeah, and, and I've uh, just done a, a, a talk, uh, which is about quit or commit. Are you, are you going to quit? You know, it's not for you. Or are you going to really commit yourself? Because you can't be a little bit pregnant. You're either all in or you're not. And and I do think what you say is is really important to to ensure people are signed up to it. Because if they're not, there's, there's lots of other things they can do. And is this the only thing they should be doing? Um, which takes us nicely on to... When you are doing something that's hard, you need a lot of resilience, which is our cue, which is our next one, resilience quotient, coping with adversity, setbacks, disappointments. You've had you know, much success and uh, you know, uh, overt success by anybody's measures, but at the same time, you've had setbacks and you had disappointments. What's given you the resilience? You know, Those 24 years in WAMU from the front desk to being the co-president and then in Barclays, all the success you had and now the winery and various other things. What's your tip for people on resilience? Uh, keep the things in. There's things happen every day that can kind of turn against us. Uh, they're big and little things. And, and, um, and, and the key is the perspective. Uh, it's the direction of travel that's so important to, to me. And so um, resilience comes from if somebody else can do it, why can't I? Um, um, and, and, and so as, as you look at it, there's no other outcome than to say, how do I? handle this, knowing that in the grand scheme of things, you know, a lot of times we'd face a business challenge and I would say in five months from now, will we remember today? The reality is most of the days you have, you won't remember five months from now, no matter how traumatic they are. So, so the answer is, 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 is is sort of understand that, keep a perspective of it. Um, But also, also um, 
um, when it's time of crisis, it's time to perform at the highest level. I mean, hey, when, when, when our winery, the harvest is great, you don't need much a very good winemaker to make really good wine. Now, if winemakers listening, then, then yes, we do appreciate great winemaking always. But point of it is when the harvest is great, the fruit is great, the winemaker makes wine. But there's harvests called winemaker harvests where not everything went right in nature that year and things are challenging. And that's when you need the winemaker to do their very best work. You don't want your winemaker's best work to be during a good harvest. You want it to be when there's a when there's a challenging harvest. Well, same thing for all of us. We're invited to respond to various crises and stresses in our life. And we need to think of that as an invitation to say, how do I accept it? How do I embrace it? How do I take it on? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and to me, it creates an energy and a mindset that is, uh, it, it just can't be defeated. Yeah, no, I, I love that one. And particularly, you know, we do our, we should do our best work at those most difficult, challenging times. And then of course, some people go, I don't care what other people think about what I do or my performance. But then I think there's a lot to be gained from understanding how others perceive you. And when you and I work together, uh, as I do with all the other CEOs, I, I, I want to find 360 feedback on you on, on how you're perceived by those around you, above you, below you, particularly those below you and peers, because often people, they do well looking upwards. Everybody's good at sucking up. Um, they also sometimes caring for the people down below them, but they fail to realize that their first team is the team they're on working for the CEO or whatever it is. And their peers are their first team colleagues. They just go, my my team, my precious, my special, my team. And your team could go sort off, you know, but my team's okay. I'm doing well, but they know as if they're so it's sort of like you make them into a tribe and it's got to be your tribe doing better than theirs, but you're in the same firm. Many people don't get this bit, but you did. So what have you learned over the years uh, uh, about the importance of 360 for your own brand reputation image and what you can learn from it, the process of it? Uh, I'm so glad you brought it up because um, I, I was guilty early in my career of being the worst. I, I call it constituency management. I come to a table and I sit with my fellow executives and I represent my team. I represent my constituents and I am there to fight for their rights and for and to defend their their honor and to ensure that they get all the tools that they need. Well, that creates an interesting interaction between my fellow executives who are all there to do the same thing. And um, and again, I think our work really helped us to start thinking about. We we in fact, Jonathan, we named it Team One. Uh, team One for me was always the people that worked for me, that the people on my team. And as I grew, as a responsibility grew by necessity, I realized that Team One is actually my team of, 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 of peers were collectively trying to create an outcome in support once again for that, for that, for that vision. It's not for my team, it's our team. Mm-hmm. And we began to work in an entirely different coll- a, a way to collaborate. And, and the power of, of, of the team versus individual decision-making in survival games that for sure you have done, it, it's undeniable. It's, it's undeniable. And it's almost um, um, every single time the team will make better decisions. So switching team one in my mind with my fellow executives really knocked down silos. If you want to break down silos, look at team one. Mm. Um, Then we started spreading the team one around the different sort of halos of peers in my organization. Mm. A dramatic Mm. effect. You did. I I saw it transform and it was it was great. You know, first team, as you say, your executive, the team you're reporting into for the boss uh, and your own team is team two. Not they're not important, but but actually you would be prepared 
to give a resource, a person to help a colleague, um, even if at first you don't get anything back in, in return, but that's the right way to think, to think as if you are your boss doing that role, you'd want them all to collaborate. You, you need them to work with each other. The final uh, component around Inspiring Leadership Compass before we talk about teams and then a favorite book on leadership and your top tip is legacy. So Mike, in your personal life and in your work, what would you like people, if I was, uh, when the day will come, if I'm still alive, if I were to travel to your funeral, what would you like them to say about you in your work and in your personal life? Mm, very interesting question. To, to me, the legacy is defined by, um, I hope that um, I was able to help, I hope thousands and thousands of people have, have better outcomes in their, in, their, um, in, in their careers, in their success, however they define success. I mean, I don't look at it work-life balance. I think it's called life. And so if I can help somebody with a better career, um, help them become more self-aware and grow, then their life will be better because by definition, it's part of their life. So I, I love to think that I helped and that I will help um, um, many, many, many people. Um, and then they would say, Mike helped me grow and sort of discover more about myself. And in so doing, I grew uh, far beyond what I thought was possible. I'm a mm. massive believer in stretch goals, Jonathan. I'm a massive believer in stretch goals. And I could do a whole hour talk on those. And, and, um, and, and so I like to challenge the people that I mentor um, in, in creating stretch goals and then achieving them. And so that's what I would want people to say. And I would hope it'd be lots of people who say their life is better. Yeah, and, and I know there will be because I know many of them and they've gone on. So your alumni are now CEOs themselves or in teams around the world. They've gone on to other places uh, and they themselves have made a difference. So the cascade effect has been fabulous. And, and you've also talking about first team and second team. You've also created lots of executive teams. You've inherited executive teams. What have you done to turn those teams into real high performing teams, places where they're just buzzing and collaborating uh, and creating great results, but having fun, joy in the work they do? What, what's your tip? If there was sort of one major tip that you'd give um, before we talk about a favorite book. Sure, sure. Um, um, the main thing is to be very clear about articulating values and ensure that you live those values. Then you invite people to sign up for those values. And uh, an example I'll give, um, at one time at Washington Mutual, we grew um, through 32 acquisitions. We grew eightfold in 30 months. And I was the guy typically down uh, when we were buying large California banks, banks much bigger than ourselves. And I was the guy who had to go in and talk to these executives, many of whom would not be keep their jobs. And I would say, I'd have a long presentation um, all from the heart, nothing from prepared, but I would talk heavily about the values and I would invite people, be here and be happy, understand you can really contribute, be there and be happy, meaning somewhere else, and we'll be friends, but do not stay here and be unhappy because you will force me then to remove you and I will resent that because you made the choice to not fit in and not be happy. So it's a very, a very simple way to say, um, uh, I, I just want people to understand what we stand for that is real. And I want them to understand that they contribute to that. And I want them to know that, um, and, 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 and sadly quite a few executives that work for me at Barclays 
decided not to take me up on the on the invitation. Some left voluntarily and have done great, really well. Some didn't, and I think they're doing well as well. But that's the bottom line to me is 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 um, connect them to values. I, I I love that one, Mike, and I think I'll remember that for for a long time. Many things uh, wisdom you have, but the, uh, I, I do remember, and you you use that with them a lot. You know, be here and be happy, or uh, let me help you find your happiness elsewhere. Be there and be happy, and and we'll let you leave with dignity. But don't be here and be unhappy. That's just the worst. Of all. And so many of them are, and then they resent everybody, and they feel they are not doing things, pointing fingers everywhere else, but taking personal accountability because you have choice. You know, as my as my old sergeant major said, sir, if you can't take a joke, you shouldn't have joined. You know, you volunteered for the army. You know, like. Just get on with it. You know, you, you have choice. Um, so, Mike, uh, favorite book, apart from, of course, the book that we recommend to everybody, The Better Way to Win, Leading in a Time of Crisis by Mike Amato. Apart from that excellent book, what book on leadership would you recommend and why would you recommend it to people? Okay, so um, um, I'll give you kind of two answers and I hope they satisfy you. The, the first one is one of the most powerful books I've read was The Big Short. Yes, um, I, I was in the car with John Varley, the chair, the group chairman of Barclays, when it was determined that Barclays would take over um, um, Lehman Brothers. And that was a fantastic moment. So when I read the big short, it describes an incredibly interesting and challenging, especially since Wash Mutual turned out to be one of the architects of the financial crisis. So um, um, so, so that book to me is fascinating. In there is tons of of examples of leadership, both good and bad. If, if you if you read the stories and kind of follow the thing, it, it, it's an amazing um, conversation on not just society, but values and um, and, and group think, et cetera. So I, I loved it, I lived it and I saw it. So it was, it was incredible. Um, it's not quite a book, but one of my favorite documents that I grabbed, Jack Welch's last letter to his shareholders in, in, in GE's annual report. Um, read it. It's phenomenal writing, phenomenal principles. Um, and, and especially when he describes toxic cultures and how individuals mm -hmm. contribute to that or what they expect. So Jonathan, I'm sorry, that's not really a book, but I, I can reach into my bookshelf right now and I can grab it and it'll be, it's very dog-eared because I use it time and time again. Send it to me, Mike, send it to me. I'll read oh. it. Yeah. You've got it. Scan You've got it, it, scan it and send it to me. I, I would love that. So the big short, I agree with you. And uh, you and I had talked about that uh, offline, whether it's Lehman Brothers, who I, I talked to the uh, uh, the partner who uh, was from one of the, um, the accountancy firms who for 10 years worked on Lehman Brothers after it had gone down. Mm -hmm. And he said the amazing thing was it was still making a lot of money to pay back off people. But its culture, even the people who remained after it had gone down, had a good news culture that 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 um, good news is OK. Failure is not an option. So they would give good news to their bosses, even when it was sliding down. They'd try and make things up. And then people started to lose their moral compass and make stuff up and, and give the wrong results. So people have got to be careful of those good news cultures and fear is failure is not an option um, because you want uh, integrity and you want honesty and people to whistleblow and call early. Um, Mike, that's great. Would you finally now just introduce yourself, uh, say what you're doing now for the two minute top leadership tip and give us your top tip over to you. 
Thank you, Jonathan. My name is Mike Amato, and I am an author of the book, The Better Way to Win, being released this week. Um, it's leading in a, in a time of crisis. Um, I've got 35 years in, in um, every level of financial, um, in the financial management side of, of, of business in terms of um, from answering the phone to becoming president, becoming an executive um, on, on a global board and uh, board of directors in a couple of companies. I'm a, I'm a mentor um, to leaders all over the world and I give keynote speeches about leading in a time of crisis. Um, as a part owner for a winery, I'm, 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 I'm love to do things that feed my heart. So that's who I am and that's what I do and everything feeds my heart. Now my top leadership tip, there's, there's probably so many, but to me, um, I, I would begin by saying, um, don't confuse inputs with outputs. In business because of pressures, it's easy to devolve into managing to an output. We need to make this much money and to make this much money, we need costs to be this high because revenue is gonna be this high and building plans and, and accountabilities in that. It's exactly the wrong way to go about it. I would invite you to consider the inputs. And if you get the inputs right, if you get relationship with customers, you have a value proposition that appeals to customers, great. You have products that represent that, have metrics for that. Likewise, create a value proposition for employees. We don't think about it that way, but we need to recruit employees um, every bit as aggressively as we recruit customers with products. What's our product? Our culture. So focus on that. Uh, do things right. Have quality. Audits should be good. Relationship with the regulators should be good. Have management metrics. One of the questions I don't see asked enough is, what is what, uh, uh, why are you relevant as a manager? Ask your team that sometime and see the reaction. You'll see they'll struggle to answer the question. Why are you relevant? I try to find that. I, I try to discover what my relevance is every single day. Am I relevant? Do I matter? And then finally, then what is the output? And I guarantee if you set a stretch goal on an output, I guarantee you, you, you will hit that stretch goal. Stop budget mindsetting your way to incremental output. Stretch your way to a phenomenal output. That's a long leadership trip. That's a tip. Pardon me. That's what I would say. Mike is brilliant, as always. Thank you very much for being on the Inspire Leadership Podcast. And I wish you every success with your book. And I recommend people get a hold of a copy. When it's coming out this week, is it? This week, anywhere books are sold. Okay. Mike, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Jonathan. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.